Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and it, our podcast is sponsored by Indiana Women's Action Movement. Um, today, we are just super fortunate to be joined by David Pepper. Uh, he's an author of five books, and the one that we are going to be talking about today is Laboratories of Autocracy, um, which is a book that discusses the uh, development from democracy to autocracy um, that is occurring in our state legislatures. So um, David is from Ohio, and, um, and you will learn a lot about Ohio when you read this book. Uh, and, and I think that's so useful that you did that, uh, David, to really show what, you know, what was so great about Ohio and then what happened to it. Right. So, um, but I first, you know, one of the, one of the biggest issues that is throughout the book and is throughout our nation becoming a huge problem is the supermajority legislatures. And right. Indiana has had a supermajority Republican legislature uh, for 10 years now. And, mm -hmm. um, and we're going to have it for a while. And right. so this is what is so important. And I, which I think is so amazing about your book is that you, you outline really what the problem is with this, where, where it's going. Uh, so anyway, thanks for being on here and let's get right into it. And if All you right. could talk, about that, just to start. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, where I live in Cincinnati, we do call it the tri-state, and Indiana is one of those three states. So I'm glad to talk uh, to, to a state that is right near down the road from where I live. Um, and to be clear, the book, it's, I guess, a little bit like What's the Matter with Kansas, where there is a lot about Ohio in it, but it's a story of Indiana. It's a story of Wisconsin. It's a story of Florida. The reason I go into some detail in Ohio is because I feel like if we just gloss it over and say everyone's going through it, no one really can see just how painful it is. Right. And so by dwelling enough on Ohio, this state that you know we think of as, as you know the heart of it all, to tell the story of a state that, you know, the home of John Glenn, the home of the Wright brothers, the home of Toni Morrison that is seeing a downward spiral of public outcomes of, of extremism when we used to be more moderate. My hope is that, you know, it, it, it's about Ohio, but it's sort of, it's sort of getting into the excruciating pain of, of these corrupt rigged state houses in the damage they're doing. And so it, it's a story about Ohio, but it's a story about a whole lot of states in Indiana. My, my sense is sadly, is experiencing so much of what we are. Uh, and, and it's the incentive part that you talk about. It's not even just that it's super majority, it's guaranteed super majority. It's, right. it's, the, guaran it's the rigging of elections, which we have come to, uh, to unfortunately view as standard politics that shouldn't be standard. But, but when it is locked in like it is now, it really distorts every incentive of public service. Uh, and that's what I try and walk through. And, you know, this is something I was chair of the Ohio Democratic Party for a number of years. And I saw it when I was chair, but I think stepping away as I did early this year uh, made it even more clear to me that when you start, you know, if you're, and this is going to be the story of Indiana, I, I guarantee it. When you're, when you're literally a majority, a supermajority is locked in no matter what happens. And I show in Ohio that even when this horrible legislature we have embraces the most toxic positions, they do so knowing they will never lose. And, and I go through examples where they did that and almost none of them, if not any of them lost a seat. 
the incentives truly become upside down. There's no longer an incentive in Ohio to create positive public outcomes, not only for the entire state, but even for the districts that you represent, because it doesn't matter. You're gonna win no matter what. So I can show you data that shows that our schools are far worse. Our small towns are dying. Our healthcare outcomes are in the, in the mid to low 40s out of 50 states. On almost every issue you can measure in Ohio, our public outcomes are cratering, yet the politicians never leave. They're, they're just fine. They know it. So there's no longer a linkage between being in office and actually serving public good. There's all sorts of incentive, and I'm sure you're dealing with this, to be as extreme as possible, because the only way you lose your office is if you're not extreme enough and you lose in your next primary. There's also, and I don't know your state capital as well as here, but you're surrounded in this state capital place like Ohio by certain private interests. If You may not ever lose by having horrible public outcomes, but if you make those people upset, you may lose. So be as extreme as possible and do what those private people want. So what are the examples of that in Ohio? This recent bribery scandal that involves Indiana a little bit um, uh, with, the, uh, with the utility, energy utility. They have given away the store to for-profit online charter schools, yep. the worst of which was a scam. Uh, make them happy. You'll never lose anyway because the public schools getting worse doesn't affect how you do. But these people are giving you a lot of money. So you've had with all those and there are others, too. You know, there's almost no incentive anymore against being corrupt because you don't lose. But if if you're semi corrupt or you generally operate in a pay to play you know, mindset, you raise a lot of money. So you add it all up. And what our state houses have become is these institutions that honestly spend most of their time doing incredibly extreme things that are far out of the mainstream of, of, of where Ohio or I'd say Indiana are. And then they also are generally spending most of their time taking public assets or public resources and handing them over to private people, to big companies, for-profit scams, you name it. And that's why I think you see almost part and parcel with these rigged, uh, rigged uh, state capitals, you see cratering public outcomes and you and you run into corruption again and again and again. And that's basically the new governing model in many of our states. And, and the worst part of it is the one way they can keep it going and not lose their office is to continue to rig elections even more extremely. And that's why Indiana, Ohio, Tennessee, you name it, they're currently rigging elections again through gerrymandering because if they ever had fair districts, you would never get, get away with terrible public outcomes, corruption, worsening schools, for-profit charter school scams. So it, it's sort of like everything ratchets up together, the outcomes, the corruption, and then you got to keep rigging those districts because otherwise the game will end very quickly. So it's, it's this terrible set of incentives, but the heart of it is they come out of a system where the, those districts are so one-sided there's no accountability left in state-level politics. And, and one thing I say in the book is uh, we are now at the end of a generation of people who've only known this system, the people in office. And it's far more warped than I think even the people like Karl Rove, who thought about this all 10 years ago. I think they wanted to keep power. 
But I don't think even they realize how warped things get when the entire generation of political leaders have essentially been living in a system that's not that, that we can't really call a democracy anymore. And that's why I think it's spiraling so quickly in the wrong direction, is we're being led by majorities who themselves have never really been through a democratic process. I that you know, I would the things you name are have all happened in Indiana. Absolutely. We had the we had the scandal, $80 million worth of fraud of a for-profit um, private school, you know, taking uh, taking money from the government. Uh, yeah. You know, all those things you mentioned, we, we, yeah, we've had that too, which is, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost bizarre to think that it's that's It's hard. Happening. Well, it, it, the incentives are going to work the same perverse results everywhere. And, and what, what, and here's one other thing I didn't mention. Seeing that state houses are this Achilles heel of governance People like the Koch brothers in the group called ALEC have, have nationalized the issue. They've weaponized it. So the same incentives were working on the Indiana politicians that are on the Texas politicians, the Ohio politicians. So I guarantee you, as I say in the book, Google the state, Google the word corruption, Google the word rigging. You're going to see the same outcomes. In, in Texas, it's the power grid falling apart. So people literally froze to death in Texas. In, in Ohio, I it's the schools. In, in other states, it's it's some element of corruption and private profit taking that pulls away from public outcomes. Same story everywhere. Right. So I want to move on a little bit to um, the election rigging that you've that right. you've talked about. I mean, there is, of course, the gerrymandering. We're all we're all aware of it. And unfortunately, uh, you mentioned in your book that Ohio has this other system in place uh, to, that tries to set up uh, guardrails uh, so that state legislature state legislators are not. Uh, drawing their own maps. Well, right. Indiana doesn't even have that. Uh, right. They can draw their maps and yeah. there's very little guidance. Um, so yeah. there has been some discussion of suing for, over the new maps, but there's really nothing. Uh, the, the constitution just says they have to be contiguous and about the same amount of people. And that's right. it. Many other states have better uh, better systems, but we saw like in Ohio where they did, it didn't matter. They were able to overcome it, yeah. that anyway. So uh, and then, of course, there's, you know, um, uh, voter suppression, and we've had our issues with that. But I want to talk a little bit more about the election oversight. Um, you know, I remember that um, after the 2020 election and, uh, you know, Trump wanted to disavow this election. It's fraud. And he said in Michigan, um, you know, there was fraud and he invited the legislators to come have dinner at the White House. Yeah. And I thought, well, what the heck? What's that mean? They can't do anything. Well, and then, of course, now we're seeing um, what's happening uh, in all of the states, uh, introduction right. of bills that are really going to put legislators in charge of election count, you know, vote counting, yeah. election certifying and 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 that whole thing. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's, you know, the next thing coming that we really need to be prepared for. Yeah. I mean, I call the book Laboratories of Autocracy for a reason. They are literally functioning as laboratories where they're always testing, they're always experimenting. And when something doesn't work, they learn from it. And Trump stumbled across the ability of legislatures to mess with elections and to mess with the electoral college count too late in the game. It was too late. And the federal law makes pretty clear once you've had the election, you can't then change how electoral college votes are divided up. But well, now they have three and a half years to do that. And you bet they're literally taking the same kind of memos that Trump had in mind on January 6th. And now they're going to try and spend the next couple of years getting ahead of the curve. And so they're doing that in a lot of ways. 
But yeah, one of the most troubling, and I go through the book, you know, one of the things that's frustrating is the wrong word, but I just don't agree with. A lot of people are saying, well, these legislatures are doing all this because of the big lie of 2020. They were doing this long before 2020. After 16 and 18, you start to see these. Le- so most of the decade, these rig legislatures had Republican governors, Republican secretaries of state, Republican attorneys general. So they basically were doing what they needed to do and wanted to do without any opposition. But in 16 and 18, Democrats won governorships in Carolina and Michigan and Wisconsin and attorneys general seats in states like that. And that's when the le- that's when we started to see that even when those happened, these legislatures immediately started trying to undermine the power of newly elected Democratic governors, attorneys general, you name it. Whenever someone gets in their way, they start changing the rules or undermining those authorities. And we saw that begin in 16 and 18. I don't think we we were still so focused on voter suppression and Trump that we didn't see, oh, my gosh, they're now trying to strip powers away from independent office holders. So the conversion from that, which they did effectively in some states, into 20, where they're now saying, okay, we're just going to take over elections directly. We're going to undermine sectors of state. We're going to undermine separate courts. It's the same thing. It's just new targets. So yeah, after 2020, they're frustrated even with Republican sectors of state, like the one in Georgia, the one in Arizona. They're frustrated with Supreme Courts of states because they didn't get exactly what they wanted. So yeah, they are spending a lot of time right now trying to change the way that elections themselves are run. In Georgia, we have this extreme example where they're pulling the Secretary of State out of a five-member elections commission and replacing that person with three me- with overall a, a commission where they where the legislature itself has the majority. And once they do that, we basically will have no check and balance, just like they can gerrymander like they want to in states like Indiana. Now, apparently in Georgia, they're going to be able to actually make key elections decisions not from an independent office holder or in some cases an independent commission, some states may have that, but the legislature itself, which is really, really scary. In Arizona, they are trying to strip powers away from uh, the Secretary of State, who happens to be a Democrat. In other states, they want to take away the ability for attorneys general to make decisions about election cases in court. Well, that can be the difference between winning and losing a state if, a, if an attorney general all of a sudden is no longer defending against a lawsuit alleging that, that the result was fraudulent. In Ohio, they're changing the way we, we elect judges because they don't want to have a Supreme Court of Ohio that may disagree with them. So in multiple ways, they are literally going after the last remaining checks and balances that exist in trying to politicize them or worse, bring them into their own control. It's a really, you know, again, as I try and say in the book, if this were happening in another country, we would literally be alarmed and say, that's not a democracy. A a legislature undermining the independence of a court, that's a really scary red line. Well, it's happening all over our country right now in state to state. It's almost not even discussed as, as a problem right now. But yeah, that's exactly what's happening. But but they're also doing things that take away power from local elections officials. They're trying to make everything more partisan. But Georgia is the best example where they don't they don't like that even a Republican secretary of state stood up to Trump. And so they've stripped power away from that secretary of state. 
and they are taking over our election commission in a way that the state house now will be calling key shots in the during and in the middle of elections. And that that really is a scary proposition. That is funny. And Indiana, the latest uh, the, the latest thing now is to um, indicate parties of school board members. Yeah. That's Same the, thing. That's what they did yeah, to our yeah. courts here. Oh, by the way, Wisconsin right now is seeing this exact thing in Georgia. They are trying to I don't have every detail top of mind, but they have an independent commission over elections and the Republican legislature is literally, you know, acting as if they've done something wrong to try and like Georgia, they want to replace everything that's independent with people who are as partisan as they are. Right. So they can dictate the outcome along partisan lines and not actually have, you know, people who are in a position of, of just calling things what they are as, as opposed to just dictating partisan results. But yeah, what they're doing to your school boards, they've done to our courts here because they want to know how Supreme Court, again, it's as partisan as the legislature, which is the last thing that we should want if you want an independent check and balance in your judicial system. Right. So, and so, and as you describe this, you know, you know, in your head, you start thinking, okay, this is going to get so wackadoodle that, yeah. you know, even Republicans will not be able to live there. You know, there's got to be an end to this. There's got to be a point where it goes too right. far. And so, um, so I, I love it in the book that you then you kind of, you know, draw back and let's look at the big picture. Um, so talk first about um, the part of your book where you talk about the guarantee clause, because that's going right. to that's going to make us feel <laughs> we'll feel a little better. <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of the I, I do teach election law, but my book tries to be more practical and academic. But everything I'm describing, the founding fathers of our country is first flawed as they are, were on some issues. They were worried about exactly what I'm talking about. They understood what Donald Trump figured out, that they were giving state houses a lot of power over democracy, the power to set the time, place, and manner of elections, the power in the end to decide how presidential electors are allocated, and the power to ultimately draw district lines. And James Madison literally wrote in, in the Federalist Papers, Boy, if, if these states ever become corrupted by private influences or in th their worry was the monarchy would still control them, that those states could use these powers over democracy to undermine our entire nation's democracy. They wrote that. It, and I, no, not to be too negative, but that's what's happening. Exactly what they worried about is happening right now, that state houses this sort of Achilles heel of American governance could be used to pull down national democracy in a big way. And because they worried about this, they wrote in the Constitution this clause that's gotten lost over time. But when you think about the wording is this very dramatic statement, which is that the United States, the United States, the quote, the United States shall guarantee to states a Republican form of government. And what they meant by that was when they said Republican form of government, they did not mean the Republican Party. They meant that the Republican governance was their revolutionary concept that these state governments need to reflect the will of the people, that that it was the people were sovereign. And so they were basically saying we have to have an essential condition of giving states power over democracy is that states themselves are run democratically, that they are Republican form of government. And they're basically writing the Constitution, writing in that if there are moments where states are not looking like they are 
small d democratic governance, the United States shall guarantee that they will be. So they basically were saying to Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, your senators, our senators, you must protect states so that they have democratic governance. It is a requirement, is a guarantee. That's what the guarantee clause is. And, and as one professor who I happened to take at law school said, it was like an insurance policy. You get a lot of power states, but on one condition, you must be democratically run. You cannot be, you know, you cannot be a old the, the, the equivalent of a monarchy. But they literally Madison literally worried that that as they put it, quote unquote, rich men would figure out how to get their hands on state governments to cause trouble. And it's literally what Alec is doing, the Koch brothers. So the reason I write this is it's a command that the current U.S. Congress must listen to, that, that they, are, they have an obligation, just like they do to you know, protect our country internationally and respect equal protection, and you name all those other constitutional First Amendment, they also are supposed to guarantee that every state has a democratic form of government, small d. And that's what the reason I bring this up is it should clarify right now that the folks in Congress need to pass these voting rights bills that would help end gerrymandering, wouldn't end it completely, but would narrow it right. and would, will protect voting rights when state after state after state are literally trying to gerrymander and undermine voting rights. So they essentially don't have a Republican form of government. And this is going to sound dramatic. I don't think a lot of states right now actually meet the bill of a Republican form of government. I think states where we know, like the one you live in, the results of your state and too many other states are guaranteed no matter what. There's no choice in them. There's no accountability. That's what the founders would say. All of a sudden, the, 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 the sovereign of these states is no longer the people. You know, even if it's a Republican-leaning state, like Texas, they're passing bills that, aren't no, that are nowhere near the majority of you in Texas. That abortion bill out of Texas a few months ago, the majority of people in Texas don't agree with that. But they've set up a system in all these states where the legislatures are comfortable passing legislation that is in no way connected to the majority of the people in those states. That's when the founders would say, well, that's not a Republican form of government anymore. In Congress, you have a job to fix it. So to me, it's a very clarifying part of the Constitution that not only tells the, you know, the everybody, you're supposed to guarantee Democratic governance states, it also tells Joe Manchin, and by the way, the filibuster should not get in the way of that. This is, right. the, the filibuster is a procedural maneuver it, that should in no way trump a constitutional guarantee, especially if the filibuster is literally being held up by the very states that are attacking dem democratic governance. So, And just I to be clear, the bills you're talking about are the John Lewis um, Voting Rights Act and the For the People, and Act. The For the People Act. Well, right. and the amended one that's in the Senate. But right. these things would all make a lot of difference in returning yes. small d democratic governance in states and I think the founders would say, yeah, that's when we talked about the guarantee clause, we are talking about you all have an obligation to protect the citizens of states like Indiana against legislators and private interests that are literally turning your government into a non-democratic government, it, which I, it sounds dramatic. That's what we're talking about. And so I do hope, and I, I, by the way, I've sent my book to some of these senators saying, you have an obligation under the constitution to protect citizens of every state, to ensure that we all have small d democratic governance in our states. 
And when states don't have that, you actually are supposed to step up. It's not a choice. It's not, you can't say, well, we've got to pass infrastructure so we can't get to that. You actually, let's do infrastructure too, by the way, but there's a guarantee in our constitution that every citizen of all 50 states should be in a system that looks like a democracy. And when that isn't happening, you're supposed to actually do something about it. And that, that's why I add that. It's, I think it's a very clarifying clause about what the United States Congress and Senate should be doing right this second on this issue. And so, uh, and you are convinced, right, that uh, if the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, bill is passed and the For the People bill is a passed, that that would really make the difference? That would do it? It, it would make, no, it's, I, so in my book, as, as you know, and I, I encourage everyone to read it because it goes through a lot of this. I go through 30 steps, 30 things. Right. Of, uh, but the history of our country is very clear. If there are nonstop attacks on democracy at the state level and the federal government does not resist them, those attacks will succeed. That's why we got the Jim Crow era. So I'd say necessary, but not sufficient. But those okay. federal laws that will curb gerrymandering, stop the worst attacks on voting rights, will are very important. My worry is without them, we can all do a lot of other work, but it won't be enough. But let's say with them, we also have a lot of work to do. We, you know, we need those laws and someone running for the state house in Indiana in every corner of the state. And we need people registering to vote and everything else. But if we simply let the, but, but here's what I don't agree with. And this, this is something I've heard from Washington. When I hear people say, well, we don't need those laws passed because we'll just organize better in a campaign. I don't think that's at all realistic about how, how steep a hill we are now forced to climb. The reason we elect people to these seats is to protect democracy. Yes, we have to work in our states and do a lot of work that maybe we're not even doing now, but they have an obligation to pass laws to protect democracy in states and to expect everyday citizens and volunteers and candidates back in states to fight not just their opponents, but government rules that are rigging districts and keeping you know, one side's voters from, from as accessible, you know, easy access to the ballot as theirs. It's just a bridge too far. So we have to pass those laws and work really hard politically in state after state. Right. Together, I think it. that's enough. Yes, and um, you gave you give this great list of uh, you know things to do. Here's how to resist uh, in the federal level, the state level, and the personal level. And um, and I wonder just at the state level in that section of the list, what do you think are the you know the most important things? What what would you like to highlight? So those, I'd highlight, and, and I know you have a new chair there, and I know you have. Mm -hmm. uh, I appreciate the group that your group here um, run in every district. It, know who your state house candidate is. Know who your state house representative is. If they're a champion of democracy, if they're voting for voters and voting rights and good things, wonderful. Help them. Ask them who else you need to help. If they're not, if they're one of the people, and my my worry is the majority in Indiana who are voting against voting rights, who are trying to change election laws, who are attacking other other things that the majority would would disagree with them on. Do not let them run without an opponent. Run yourself, get your most impressive friend, do something, but be sure that, the, that, that what they love is uncontested elections where 
They have a monopoly over the message. No, no one on our side even has an incentive to show up because there's no opponent. So get an opponent for every one of these people who are sitting in gerrymandered districts. Their whole point of gerrymandering is to not even have a conversation about how they're doing. And unfortunately, too often they succeed. And so in Indiana and in Ohio, we all need to be running all the time. State house is key, but also those school board seats, those city hall seats. Um, get in the practice of rejecting the term off your election. Get people voting and registering every single year, volunteering every single year. Um, but but a set, but a, especially when so much of the damage is being done at the state house level, um, get involved at that level. Now again, most of those people are going to lose. Let's be clear. Yeah. But running itself in a gerrymandered district is an Im immense act of public service. That if we do it everywhere, we will break through some seats somewhere. And, and what they want us to do is not even try. And it, it, let's say you have four or five swing seats in Indiana. Um, they want to be able to spend all their attention crushing anyone who's challenging them in those swing seats. So if we don't challenge them in all the seats and they can focus all their time on those four or five, but you challenge them everywhere, it makes it a lot harder for them. So one of my philosophies is whatever is their perfect scenario, interrupt it, make noise, run everywhere, call them out on it. Don't let them you know, spread the word. Uh, don't let them enjoy the perfect scenario, which is not enough noise. No one challenges them in most of their districts, et cetera, et cetera. One other thing I think about in Indiana and everywhere, this is a law, rethink your mindset about politics. Individually, we have to do this as a party. It's a long battle for democracy we're talking about. It's not a cycle oh, to cycle that. battle. I like that you brought your kind of, you know, back up and let's yeah, back say, up okay. and think about it because right. once you do that, you know, this is how Stacey Abrams has thought about politics in Georgia since she graduated from law school. Long game, big picture. That means that you can define success beyond the latest cycle and beyond just a few districts. Um, think about what is built into that long game and what is attracting from that long game. And that means run everywhere. And if, if, some, if, if, if most of those people lose, but they got more people registered, if they got more people voting, celebrate what they did, keep them in the fold, keep going, keep going, keep going. Stacey Abrams did that. She didn't win her Georgia governor's race, but she kept registering people. Everyone who voted for her stayed involved. Two years later, Georgia's blue because Stacey Abrams helped bridge to that amazing 2020. Now she's running for governor again. Hopefully that it keeps building. So and the other way we think about it as a long game is we should we need to have democracy in 50 states. And, and so beyond Indiana, beyond the people on the ground in Indiana, national people need to understand that it's important that Indiana have a democracy. And we can't just fight anymore over a few swing states every four years. The other side, the Koch brothers and Alec, they are fighting against democracy every year in every state. You see it, we see it, but they have a think tank in Vermont, in Hawaii, that's basically undermined democracy. There, they, Virginia was red, was blue in 20 for Biden. Did they quit? No, they went back and won the governor's race a year later. They almost won New Jersey. If one side is fighting against democracy every year at every level, and the other side 
basically fights every four years in some swing states, the, the side for democracy is going to lose. You're, you're not on offense. You're, you're rarely on offense. You're usually on defense. So we have, so we have to think about it bigger at that level. But then when we get down to your level in, in my level here in Ohio, it's, it's every, every citizen can make a difference. You know, I go through uh, whether it's helping local journalism by subscribing to papers, whether it's getting, making sure you're helping register voters in states like Ohio, they've purged so many voters that we all have to play a role in our own lives of re-registering the people who've been purged or we're going to lose. It's focusing on state house races. It's, it's every, and you're already doing this, but it's every single group, if you're a political activist group, have a state house footprint as part of what you do. Don't, don't ignore the state house. One of the reasons the state house have become the place where the damage is being done is because they know no one's paying attention to it. Interrupt that. Make sure you are paying attention to it. So there's a lot in the book about this. I hope some of this is specific enough to be helpful, but it's good. But and you're giving we, me ideas about yeah, uh, there's doing really, the podcast and, and, from the state house. The way I view this, it's a continuing conversation. So if, it is. if you, one of the things we, the other thing we have to do is, you know, every mayor in Indiana who is a Democrat, every mayor, your group should ask them, what are you doing to promote democracy in your city? Do you run rec centers? Do you run health clinics? If so, are you registering people to vote in those places? Don't just leave it for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. That's leaving out far too many people. Every single, uh, are you on a nonprofit board of a food bank, of a homeless shelter? Are you registering those people? Are you, in, are you getting them the paperwork on how to vote early? Every single person listening to this in your network, every elected official, they should be playing a role in lifting democracy in whatever sort of part of the world they have some control over. And I don't, you know, that's how the other side thinks about it. But I think our side, we, you know, we're waiting for the next Stacey Abrams to save the day and create some amazing voter registration effort. When the truth is, if you're on a nonprofit board, you can do that right now. If you're the mayor, if you're the next Pete Buttigieg and the mayor of South Bend or somewhere else, you can be registering people right now in your city every single day. Uh, and so and one thing, you know, about Stacey Abrams that I that was that, you know, you talked about and it really reminded me of her um, her non-concession speech. Um, correct. You know, that's what Democrats need to be doing more of saying, um, I know I didn't get the same amount of votes, but this is rigged and right. we need to talk about why this is an undemocratic election. Correct. And uh, and more candidates should do that. They should say, yep. uh, you know, this is not I, I'm not conceding because this is not this is not a legitimate election. Right. I mean, the difference between states, some people have tried to make the analogy for her to Trump. Like she, she accepted the results, mm -hmm. but she didn't, you know, she didn't uh, confirm them as legitimate given all the attacks on voting in her state. Right. And, and think of all the people, the votes that were suppressed in that Georgia election. If she had done the typical congratulations to my opponent and way to go. And I wish you luck. Hundreds of thousands of suppressed people would have said, it doesn't even matter that I'm suppressed. If Stacey Abrams can't even acknowledge that they have attacked voting rights in all these ways, then we lose hope. So, right. you know, and I think it, too many Democrats do that. I yeah, think they it, just go, it, we, okay, well, yeah, I lost. Okay, see ya. And, and of course, and we one have of the to point out the difference between book, her and Trump is yeah. that she does have actual evidence. <laughs> Correct. Of the and, illegitimacy and of the election. One of the things I put in the book is there is, there is something called 
the, ter the academic term is a competitive autocracy. And this is what Hungary essentially has become, or uh, the Russia is an exaggerated example. They want to look like a democracy, but the, the elections are predetermined. Everything's predetermined. And a key part of a competitive autocracy succeeding is the leaving the impression that everything was legitimate. And so if something is deeply illegitimate, uh, you call it out. You don't allow people to think, oh yeah, that was that. Um, if, if they suppress hundreds of thousands of voters, if they rig districts, you know, I went, I went to the state house the other day and testified against the current map. And I said to the group, the, the, the rigged Republican legislators, None of you have ever been in a real election. I know you're scared of the voters. I, I don't, I didn't want, you know, I'm a, I'm a polite, civil, nice person. That's my reputation. But I am not for a moment gonna let them leave the impression that I think they are all legitimately elected in a legitimate democracy, because they're not. It's rigged by them 10 years ago for another 10 years. And I think we need to start calling it out. Because right. what they want is a veneer of legitimacy. And when we give it to them, then the average voter thinks, oh, you know, they passed that law. That's fine. And that's what they're trying to build to for 24. They want to change rules in a way that if they do manage to figure out how to change electoral outcomes, that they'll have done it in a way that everyone says, well, that's that. We did it. And we need... You know, there, there's fair game in politics, and I'm happy to lose and concede. But if at a certain point you're losing because the rules were so rigged you couldn't win, we all have to say that. Or, or we are literally like locking into place an illegitimate system. And there's a fine line. I, I don't want to be a sore loser either. I've lost elections, and I'm like, congratulations, you beat me. You won well, for whatever reason. But we can't we can't concede if if literally it was so rigged there was no chance of winning. Right, and and I exactly I think that is something that Democrats need to do more of pointing yeah. that all out. So okay, great, and I you know again I you know I I want to talk a little bit more about um, your kind of assertion that really because things get so crazy this isn't Democrats against Republicans it's really people who believe in democracy against right. those who don't. And right. I guess I don't know, and I couldn't really figure out, and maybe you can say more about this, like how we frame that conversation. How do I go to a Republican and say, you know, if, you know, do you believe in, you know, fair elections? Do you believe right. in fair districts? Um, do you believe in, you know, uh, the public being um, the sovereign and dictating the laws yeah. of this land? Mm -hmm. And if you say yes, then you're on the same side with me. Right. And how do we, you know, how do we I have mean, that yeah. conversation? So the, my book is, and I, I didn't, I wrote it very quickly because I'm <laughs> desperate to get the word out. Um, my book is partly about strategy, part about messaging. And so that part of the book is basically saying how we should think about it. Um, now, again, if you can break bread and, and convince Republicans to be with you because of democracy, wonderful. And there are some like the Lincoln Project right now or the Bulwark are examples, you know, a John Kasich, who I, I disagree with on many things in Ohio. He did some really bad things as governor, honestly, but he he's for democracy. I can see it. He, even though he did gerrymander the state and my hope is regrets it.
But if you can break bread on democracy, great. The point of the book is break bread on that and create an alliance, even if you disagree on other things, because democracy is so at risk, we need those alliances. And that's why I've been happy to, as part of my book rollout, I've been on Lincoln Project. I've been in conversations with more conservative people. That's what we need to do. But in terms of messaging, you know, one, one thing I want to make clear, and this, uh, this comes up in my 30 steps, and I think it's, again, part of the, uh, chapter 13 of the book, the best message may not be about democracy or corruption or gerrymandering at all, because that could feel kind of insidery to a lot of people. The best message that actually can unify people, and this is sort of what you'd put in the 30-second ad or the stump speech, mm-hmm. is what I said at the very beginning, which is almost an inevitable consequence of a rigged and undemocratic system is corruption and horrific public outcomes. And oftentimes the most unifying message is to simply point out in Texas, broken government led to people being frozen to death because the energy collapsed. That's something Republican Democrats can all say, my God, that's awful. In, in um, Kansas, as I put in the book, the, the Democratic governor of Kansas, that's, that doesn't, that's not said very often. Why did she win, Laura Kelly? Because the corrupt and broken model in Kansas led to school being four days a week because they ran out of money. Mm. And when, when she starts saying, I'm all, about, I'm all about Kansas values, which are all about good schools, she was able to unite a broader electorate that, by the way, might not have responded if all she had done was talk about gerrymandering or democracy. So we had to think about how we build this broader fight for democracy in a way that we unite very broadly. But your winning message may be that you're standing up and you're pointing out the outcome of that broken democracy, which are, pub- you know, in, in Ohio or Indiana, my guess is we both share the fact that our small towns are dying. Right. That, yeah. We should be going as Democrats town to town to town and saying your town is dying because of broken government it's dying and it's unacceptable and we can fix it if 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 we do the following things and that message will probably resonate better in those towns than saying the state house is corrupt because people hear corruption they think everyone's corrupt they don't know who to believe so there's the strategy of how we unite which i do think is much bigger than one party around general values of democracy but then there's the message of winning an election, which often I, th- you know, how did Gretchen Whitmer win Michigan? The da- fix the damn roads. Um, <laughs> Laura Kelly won Kansas, fix our schools. Beto O'Rourke, you look at him, he's focusing a lot on that failed energy grid. In Ohio, I'd focus on small towns and schools falling apart. What are some of the common public outcomes that everyday people will be upset or failing? Focus on those. And I think that could be also a winning and unifying message. Excellent. Excellent. That's wonderful. Wonderful advice. Okay, great. So, um, so the last thing I want to talk about is your, uh, the website that you put into the book, uh, laboratoriesofautocracy.com. So tell us what you're doing there. So what I'm trying to do, so I, my, my worry about any book is if people just read a book and put it down. And even if they found it a great book, if that's the end of it, we're not going anywhere. I, I, I wrote this book. Hopefully you can tell when reading it because I'm really alarmed. And I want to inspire people. I, the first two thirds of the book are pretty sobering. And, and I hate to say it, I hope kind of scary because what's happening is scary. The last third is say, okay, be alarmed, but let's get to work. 
And so I created this website, laboratoriesofautocracy.com, to try and channel anyone who's interested in doing more than just reading a book and get them involved. And so the other thing that's happening with conversations like this and many others is I also want to really get a sense of best practices and organizations out there to work with. And so my hope is, if, again, if, if, if no one signs up and people read the book and they like it or they don't read the book, that's, that's that. But if there's some energy, which is building, and I do sense a lot of energy building, my hope is to turn that energy into something that's actually like helping fight for democracy in all 50 states. And right before this call, I had a great call with some people who've been doing some wonderful things in Missouri, trying to get people focused on state house levels. I, I'll, tomorrow morning, I'm talking to people in West Virginia. Uh, so I, my hope is that there will be a spark from not just what I'm doing, but a lot of other people. And so the website, my hope is there's enough energy that builds from it to turn it into something that's sort of, okay, what next? And, and that's why, I, you know, I hope people first and foremost will buy the book and read it because there's a lot more detail than even what we described. Again, it's just Laboratories of Autocracy you can get on Amazon. But the second thing is if you go to the website, laboratoriesofautocracy.com, I hope you'll sign up and we'll be communicating shortly with everybody who has. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's great that, um, you know, that you're going to carry it into another, another level of communication. That's the hope. Um, so, yeah. And I certainly recommend the book as well. Uh, certainly a great read, um, you know, very readable. And of course, my experience was like, oh, yeah, that's happening here too. Oh, yeah, yep, we have that here too. Yep, we have that. And, and of course, it, in the end, it did strike me as, how come this, you know, you know, like you mentioned in the book, this kind of whack-a-mole sort of experience, you know, like what you're passing a law to take my abortion rights away? Dang it, you're right in the and then only in last year, uh, Indiana passed a law stripping protections from the rest of our, you know, few wetlands, uh, right. you know, uh, despite huge opposition, uh, like you say, very unpopular, but passed it anyway. No, you know, they didn't care. Um, but, um, but why? It doesn't. It doesn't seem like we all know from state to state. I mean, how come it isn't? How come we don't know that this same thing is happening in all these other states when it's happening? It, it's because I, and that's why I wrote the book. I think it's. I think the minute people talk state house, the media stops paying attention, and people stop paying attention. It's too mid level. It's too. You know, you know, again, in Cincinnati, it's 100 miles away. Columbus might as well be a thousand miles away. Uh, You know, I'm as close to Indianapolis as I am to Columbus. So these state capitals are very I mean, you you, my chapter two title, I'm very proud of with with great power comes great anonymity. No one knows anything about these places. And and but who does the Koch brothers? They figured out that it, to do real damage to democracy and to serve their own, their own interests as boldly as possible, the state houses are the greatest places ever. And so they figured it out. And one of the reasons they figured it out is because they figured out no one's paying any attention. And there are all these different institutional reasons that no one pays attention. Journalism is falling apart at, at the state and local level. So no one even knows who these people are. You know, they don't get nearly, you know, as I say in the book, but also more publicly, Every time Lauren Boebert says something horrific uh, or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's a big story. Yeah. There are hundreds of people just like her at the state house level. They're not just yeah. saying these things. They're implementing them in law and no one even knows. And so it, it really it, and the problem builds on itself. One of the biggest risks of writing a book about state houses is that no one will pay attention to it. 
So I'm desperate to try and get the word out because that's the problem is people don't watch this stuff. I, I've been happy to get a lot of media from this book and, and, and because that's the problem is that people really aren't focusing on it and, and hopefully they break out of that. I, I literally see groups and people saying, here are the five answers to the attacks on democracy. Almost never do they include focus on what's happening in state houses. That's, a, that's the problem. The, 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 the state houses are literally, as I put in the book, they're the front line attacking oh, democracy. Oh, yeah. It's not Washington. Mitch McConnell is perfectly happy to have nothing happen in Washington. As long as they're putting judges in place, like the ones that just basically sound like they're going to support what Mississippi did with abortion, as long as it's a federal court system that won't interfere with state laws, they can do all their damage at the state level and wash their hands of it all. That's their perfect dream scenario. So until we all decide that part of our five-point plan or whatever to save democracy starts with state-level action, we're going to lose. And it, it's beyond me why people just don't see it that way. They, they need to. And if they don't, we're like they're going to succeed. In, and that's their game plan. And they've been working on it for decades. Yeah, you know, the group uh, that I created um, focuses only on state house legislators. And, exactly. um, and I, you know, I kind of, I realized what you're saying, um, you know, several years ago. And people still ask me, you know, why, why don't you do something more important like Congress? <laughs> yeah, like, no. no, that's, <laughs> the, the, the Koch brothers have paralysis in Washington, the filibuster stopping anything. That's exactly what they want. They want nothing to happen. And, and if, we, if we stick with the filibuster, even in, in the issue of democracy, when's the next time we're going to have 60 Democratic senators in, in the country? I, I, I don't see it any happening anytime soon, meaning that it's going to be paralysis for the rest of our lives in Washington while these state houses are rigged and just crushing democracy every single year. I mean, it is a losing situation unless we all decide you know, we're going to fight back at that level. Here's another example, and it's the whack-a-mole. And what's happening with the abortion law in Mississippi is, and Texas is exactly the issue. They passed some crazy law. And we all watched the court case. And we're all appalled by, you know, Judge Coney Barrett's questions or Kavanaugh. Has anyone ever said, well, who the hell passed that law in Mississippi and what do we do about it? Right. And who How'd the that hell happen? passed that law in Texas? No, we're going to wait for the court to decide. And then we're going to panic. And we're going to try and run for Senate and Congress based upon that decision. But we, we, we take it for a given that these state houses are forevermore rigged and extreme. And we never ask ourselves, what are we going to do about the fact that the Mississippi and Texas state houses or Indiana or Ohio are way out of whack with the people of that state? And until we go on offense and say, we're going to try and get better decisions at, at these federal courts, but at the same time, we're going to go back to these state houses and we're going to run campaigns at that level. And we're going to even things out so these crazy laws aren't passed in the first place. Until we do that, we're never going to be you know, on offense and we're going to be losing. So that's why what you're doing when they say, what's more, why do you focus on something important? Say, there is nothing more important right. than fighting back at these legislatures because that's where the battle against democracy is being waged by the other side. 
I, every day that Lauren Boebert, now what she, she needs to be held accountable for what she said uh, on the floor at that party, everything else. But every day that all we do is focus on Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert is a winning day for the attack on democracy, because it means they're not focused on what's happening in Indiana and Ohio and Texas to gerrymander, to suppress the vote, to change election rules. We're not focused on that because Marjorie Taylor Greene said something stupid. Well, breaking news. She's going to do that every day. Let's get back to the state houses where they're actually in the majority guaranteed and attacking democracy itself every single day. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your message. Um, it's been uh, it's been tough to carry that message yeah. um, um, around here. And so I really appreciate you doing all this. So definitely um, people get out there and read the book. Uh, it, it is really um, revealing. It's you just uh, you just feel like the curtain has been pulled back. Good. Uh, well, thank um, you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. All right. Take care. So, we'll see you uh, in Indiana sometime. Awesome. Awesome. I, so Come I on. have two sons, seven and one just turned five. And if you ask them what's their favorite state in the country, the answer is Indiana. Because we went to French Lick for a weekend and the bowling alley was and video games were in the basement of that hotel uh -huh. and they love Indiana. So you've got two well, Indiana fans awesome. in Ohio. Well, funny? come on over anytime. Yeah, they love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you so Take much. David. This has been just a real thrill for me. And um, really, hopefully, I, I'm just so hopeful about your message and it getting out there and really making change. Thank you. Take care. All right. See ya.